Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. Kicked off the team in college, sitting out my senior year. My parents saying, that makes no sense. You're going to play pro basketball. That was all a big shot to my ego. All of those were big punches that I took to my ego. And when that happens to people in life, they have two options. You can either A, take that failure or that embarrassment or that setback, whatever you want to call it, and you can allow that to scare you into never trying anything else. Or B, you can go the opposite direction and you can become numb to that stuff. And you basically become insensitive to the failures, to the setbacks, and you actually use that to drive you forward. So I am your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Get ready for episode 45 with Dre Baldwin. But first, if you want to download a free ebook, The Best Mental Toughness Quotes That Will Make You Better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D R R O B B E L L, to this number, 33. 444 and to get immediate download for you. If this is your first time on this podcast, I'd highly recommend checking out the two previous episodes. Uh, episode 44 with Maggie Guterall. She was the first female to win Big's Backyard Ultra, 250 miles, 60 straight hours of running. Epic story. And then the episode right before that with Coach Danita Walters, episode 43. She was hit on her bike by a car. Her story of mental toughness is incredible. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Please leave a review at the end. If you like it, subscribe. Episode 45 begins right now. So our guest today on 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness. So I I consider him a late bloomer. So he started late, only playing basketball at age of 14. So age of 14, I mean, again, he's going to be passed over from AAU travel teams, but made his high school varsity basketball team finally first time as a senior and as he tells it you know he uh he became good for 20 points now that wasn't like 20 points a game that's 20 points all season so the reason why we have the guest on is because this is somebody that just overcame adversity and the reason why is he ended up still walking to to play division three basketball where he started as a freshman penn state altoona but he did not play his senior year and that's that's the hinge moment I want to discuss today. We'll see if he talks about it. Um, you know, after that time, I mean, still worked jobs at Bailey's Foot Locker, but it was really just five years after sitting on that high school team bench that he signed his first professional contract, age at 23, to play in Lithuania. He had over nine years of them playing professional basketball. So that alone, I think, is a pretty good story, good hinge moment, and reason why he's our guest today. But it gets better. See, our guest has been blogging since 2005. He began publishing videos on YouTube in 2006. At that time, not even having any idea what he's doing, but now he has grown himself to over 7,000 published videos, content going over to 134,000 subscribers, being viewed over 44 million times. Uh, his work on your game podcast is over 1,200 episodes, 2 million downloads. Our guest has given four TED Talks and has authored 22 books. 22. I'm at six. I got a lot more to catch up to this guest. Uh, He's appeared in national campaigns with Nike, Finish Line, Wendy's, Gatorade, Buick, Wilson Sports. Uh, He has a book which I really enjoyed called Work on Your Game. Our guest today is Dre Baldwin. Dre all day. Thanks so much for joining us, man. Absolutely, Rob. Thank you for having me. Really excited for us to get into it today. You know, you got so many uh, so many points that I could kind of enter this story into, but uh, I, I want to start on this one. I mean, when you started when you started playing basketball, uh, I mean, you started late. I mean, fourteen, right? You know, when you got into that journey, and then what what was that like for you um, training and and having that vision of of what you wanted to do? What was that like? Well, my original vision when I first started playing basketball, because I played baseball up before that, I was always in the sports, was I just wanted to become a respectable player at the playground. This wasn't, this wasn't me with some basketball hoop dream thinking I was going to go to the NBA at age 14. I was 
just trying to be a player who would get picked in the evening pickup games every night. Mm -hmm. So I just started coming to the park when nobody else was at the park. This is in Philadelphia, PA, where I'm from. And I knew in the summer times during the day, no one was ever at the playground because it was too hot. You're on this concrete black tops, too hot for everybody. Everyone wants to sit in the air conditioning. So I figured, all right, that's my opportunity. That's the time where I can come practice on my own when nobody else is out there. And I'll come out when everybody else is out in the evenings and play with them. So I could slowly catch up. That was my my 14-year-old logic was that I could slowly catch up by just putting a little bit of extra work when everybody else isn't. The challenge for me was I didn't know how to practice. I didn't know how to work on my basketball game. There was no YouTube in 1996. There was no Instagram. There was there was no nobody took me under their wing. None of the neighborhood coaches was helping me out. So I was just out on the court just doing stuff, thinking things up and hoping something worked. So that was my strategy, if you even want to call it that, from the beginning. Um. I went to grad school there in uh, in Philadelphia, so I know I've probably passed some of those courts, man. And that uh, that Philly basketball is no joke, man. The Big Five, I mean, that's good. That's good playing. Um, so you you get yeah. twenty point you get twenty points your senior year in high school. What? Right. Uh, so from that point, what uh, what was the vision then? Man, so by around the age of 16, I started to get better as I'm following my you know, quote-unquote strategy of practicing all the time and just trying to figure things out. By around the age of 16, I started to grow into my body a little bit more, a little bit more athletic. I was a little bit taller. And this random practicing that I was doing actually started to pay off. So I actually started to have some real tangible skill. Mm -hmm. So by around the age of 16, was my junior year of high school, I started thinking that this is the thing that I want to do. I want to try to make it in sports and basketball because I had played football, I had played baseball, wasn't quite successful in either one of those. So now I'm thinking basketball is where I'm going to plant my flag. So that senior year when I finally did make the high school basketball team after failing three years in a row, I did sit the bench that whole year. But something great had happened that year was that one of my classmates during the school day, he was the best player on our team, this guy named Darian Chavis. Okay. He was averaging 20-something 20, 20 points a game. He was all-city. He ended up playing D1 college ball. And since he and I were in class together all day, we would just playfully talk trash to each other. So every day before practice, me and Darian would play this running game of one-on-one. -on -one. You know, so it was me playing against the best player on the team, and he was one of the best 20 players in the whole city that year. That's how you he get better. That's well. how you get better, right? Right. And what was happening, though, even though he was beating me, I would have some success against him. Like every once in a while I would score on him. Yep. Sometimes he would try to score on me and I would stop him. And I'm telling myself, okay, I'm sitting at the end of the bench. I'm not playing at all. Nobody's recruiting me. This guy's actually getting recruited. He can actually play. And I'm having some success against him. So this was the seeds that planted in my mind that I can actually compete with guys who can really play for real. Even though I wasn't one of them, I knew I could compete with them. So this gave me this pre-practice game that I was losing to this guy is what actually gave me the confidence that I could compete against damn near anybody. And by this point, I'm 18 years old. So getting out of high school, I knew wherever I went to college. I knew I was going to college academically, but I knew wherever I went, I would have to walk on to the basketball team. I didn't have any film. I didn't have a resume. But I knew I could compete with anybody anywhere that I went because of that experience with this guy who just happened to be in my class. Yeah. So do you see that a lot? I mean, because if you played against somebody that was lesser than you, not as good, and, and you dominated, you right. wouldn't you wouldn't have gotten better. I probably wouldn't have gotten better, and also it also wouldn't have boosted my confidence that much because I'm looking at like who are you beating? You know, right. it's just like is who is not what you do when you're coming up is who you what you came up against when you mm -hmm. come up is if you didn't go up against any real competition then nobody's really going to respect it you got to beat somebody who can beat you if you're only beating people who you know you're going to win no matter what then there's only so much anyone's going to respect there's only so much you can respect yourself when you know you haven't faced any real odds mm -hmm. so that's what it was for me you can build some confidence going against weaker opponents it's kind of like a boxer when they first turn pro they fight against some guys they know they're going to beat just to get some momentum but eventually you got to fight somebody who can beat you yeah. in order to be really respected do you or a loved one need a better night's sleep sleep is the most important component to our overall mental and physical health but too often we just don't get a good night's sleep the product that you need without a doubt is psalm sleep what you do is you drink a can of Psalm Sleep 30 minutes before you want to fall asleep. 
you have a great night rest, and then you wake up feeling refreshed, not foggy or hungover. I drink it all the time when I know I need an important night's sleep and I can't mess around with it at all. Listeners today, you get 15% off if you go to GetSom, that's G-E-T-S-O-M.com, and in the promo code, enter Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, you get 15% off. Everyone needs a better night's sleep. Go to GetSom.com. So you go to a Division three school to play. Yeah. And um, all right, talk about that. I mean, lead us up to that hinge moment about, you know, because uh, you ended up not playing your senior year. Uh, walk right. us through that. Okay, so after high school, I walked on at a school called Penn State Abington. Now, Penn State, for those who don't know, their system has 23 campuses. So it's not just the main campus with the football team. There are 22 other campuses. So I went to the Penn State Abington campus, which is right outside of Philadelphia, my freshman year. And that, this is a commuter campus. So I'm living at home, driving back and forth to campus every day. Okay. I walked onto the team there, and that's where I earned a starting spot. Because there wasn't a lot of talent there. The guys there didn't have pro basketball ambitions. They were just playing ball because it was available. It was fun for them. There's a couple guys who can play, but they, didn't, they weren't thinking going pro. They were like, let me just play my two years here. Because at the time, you can only play two years at that campus. So I ended up starting that year, and that summer – I would drive up to the campus every day. I wasn't taking classes, but I would drive up there just to use the gym and work on my game. So this was just on my own volition. This is my first time in my life, age 19, that I had access to an indoor gym as much as I wanted. I never had that before in my life. I built my game on the outdoor playground courts. And if it was snowing outside or raining, you just didn't play. So I finally had access to a gym and I would work out there every day. And one particular day, I happened to walk across campuses to get something to eat. And some random guy approached me. I guess he figured I looked like a basketball player. And he recruited me to come play at Penn State Altoona. Mm. So he's the guy who brought me to Altoona after my freshman year, which was just a stroke of luck because I was taking initiative. And that guy coached me for my next year, my sophomore year, the guy who recruited me. Then he lost his job before my junior year. So a new coach comes in. And this guy was basically wanted to clean house. So he got rid of nine guys who were returning players. Yeah, coach never want, always wants his own players. I get it. Yeah, he wants to bring his own guys in. Yep. I happened to make it, though. He kept me on the team even though he kicked everybody else off. But I didn't last the whole season. Eight games into the season, this guy, he was a former NBA player. He knew the game as far as he would have been a great trainer, I think, in my opinion. He would have been great training players, but he was not a good coach because he didn't quite know how to coach a team. He knew how to – help a player get better, but he didn't know how to coach the team. So his whole thing was just be this uh, dictator, my way or the highway, but his way wasn't proven, and he didn't really know how to talk to guys. So one particular day, he got fed up with me. He already had a short leash for me because I was coming from the previous regime anyway, and he's like, Dre, you know, you keep trying to do things your way. You're not going to do things your way here. And he started quoting Bobby Knight, who was this general of a coach from back in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s as well. And he's like, Dre, it's not Burger King. You can't have it your way. Kick me out of the gym. That was the end of my college basketball career. And that was only eight games into my junior year. So I still had another, the rest of that season and the whole senior year, I was still at that same school because I didn't have the resume to transfer. There weren't any coaches beating down my door when I got kicked off the team. I still needed to finish school. So I stayed at that school for another year and a half, not on the basketball team. But a lot of my friends, obviously, were basketball players. My roommate was a basketball player. I still played basketball every day. I ended up I played intramurals my senior year of college. So think of that. A guy who's thinking about playing pro basketball, playing intramurals as a senior in college. I won the championship, I should note, in intramurals <laughs> that year. Good. And just kept working on my game. And for me, I just had to have a moment where I had to keep it real with myself. And this is something that... I try to do for any audience that I deal with is that you got to be able to have that real conversation with yourself because if you can't have it with yourself, then nobody else can have it with you. You won't be coachable. So I said to myself, I know that I'm better than all these guys who are still on the basketball team after I got kicked off. But the problem is me knowing it, believing it, talking about it means absolutely nothing because objectively, somebody who knows nothing, who looks at the situation is going to say, look, dude, Dre, you may be a great basketball player, but the fact of the matter is all these 12 guys, they're on the basketball team, and you're not, and you all go to the same school. So you can't say you're better than them if you're sitting in the bleachers while they're playing in the games. So my question, the question I asked myself was, okay, how can I prove for posterity's sake, for the sake of my own ego, 
then I'm better than these players. How can I prove that this coach made a mistake by kicking me off the team and keeping these guys on the team? And since I couldn't prove it in college, that was one of my main motivators to make it in the pros was I wanted to prove to myself, to everybody else, that this guy made a mistake not keeping me on his team. I wanted to prove 10 years later, if we all come back and have a reunion, that I could say to all those guys, well, look, you were on the team that year when I wasn't, but look at this resume that I put together after college. And that was a strong motivating factor for me. And that, and when players ask me, what was it that made you go pro? A lot of athletes, you know, they like to point to, I'm sure you know, Rob, people like to point to the physical tools. How many hours did you practice? You know, how high is your vertical jump? What dribbling drills did you do? How many jump shots do you shoot every day when you go in the gym? Yes, those things matter, but there are a million players doing all those things every single day. So what separates the, the thousand of them that go pro from everybody else is mentality. As they say, sports is 90% mental, 10% physical. So me getting kicked off that team was, that was the 90% mental that I needed. I mean, I had some of it already, but that right there was like the, that was an emotional drive for me that I really, really, really needed to prove my point. If to nobody else, I need to prove it to myself. And that was the thing that really took me pro over every other 6'4 guy with long arms and who can jump high, who wanted to play pro basketball, who didn't make it. So I need you to delve into that just a little bit further. Because one of the mm-hmm. things I've experienced in, in really successful people, especially like yourself, you know, they were there was that situation where they were told, you know, you're not good enough, you can't do it. And that became the driving factor that propelled them. But delve into it a little bit further if you can. And what I mean is unpack the how did it motivate you? How did it drive you when it really got tough? Is that when you thought about like the coaches, you know, uh, kicking you out of practice? Or what was it that kept that driving force and going? You know, one thing that I've learned, especially even I say over the last 15 years, I graduated college in 2004. So exactly 15 years is that I am uh, metaphorically speaking, a marathon runner. I'm literally one. I've actually done a couple, but I'm metaphorically, I'm a marathon runner in that I like long races. I'm the type of guy who I've always believed that the longer a situation goes, the better my chances of winning. I'm not a sprinter. I'm not, if there's just a short situation where anybody can win a short race, you can get lucky and win a short race. Anybody can get lucky and have one good season. But if we're talking about putting together a resume of 10 years, of 15 years, I know I'm going to win that race because most of the competitors are not even going to be around at the end of that race, let alone are they going to stay consistent and dedicated and disciplined enough to keep doing the work. I know that's what I can do. That's my, that's my power zone. So for me, you asking like, what was it that kept me going through all those times? It was, well, first of all, that coach kicking me off the team. And also my parents didn't really see the basketball vision either because I played a division three school. I didn't start playing until I was 14, sat on the bench in high school wasn't on the team my senior year. They knew all this stuff. So when I said I wanted to play pro, it didn't make any sense to them. And it made sense to me that it didn't make sense to them. They were logical. They were reasonable. Everything they said was factual. So I wasn't mad at them. I was just mad that the truth was the truth. So for me, a lot of people don't, the thing that I would say, Rob, a lot of people don't like to admit that they're egotistical. I'm egotistical. (laughs) I have a strong connection to my ego and my ego said all this time that I put in basketball all this stuff that I told my friends and loved ones that I was going to do in basketball now look at all these failures kicked not playing in high school barely kicked off the team in college sitting out my senior year my parents saying that makes no sense you're going to play pro basketball that was all a big shot to my ego all of those were big punches that I took to my ego and when that happens to people in life they have two options you can either a Take that failure or that embarrassment or that setback, whatever you want to call it, and you can allow that to scare you into never trying anything else. Or B, you can go the opposite direction and you can become numb to that stuff. And you basically become insensitive to the failures, to the setbacks, and you actually use that to drive you forward and go as far as you can possibly go. Take it as far as you can possibly take it. So for me, I knew that for posterity's sake, when we have our 20-year reunion, my college basketball team, nobody in that room is going to be able to say anything to me, and I was going to see to it. And that was – I didn't think about it every day. It's not like I wrote it on the vision board or anything. But I know that pinprick to my ego was what was really driving me 
to keep my basketball career going because my career was not a smooth ride. It wasn't a yellow brick road even once I got into the pros. But I knew there was no way I wasn't going to prove my point. Even if nobody else really cared, I cared. And that's what mattered to me. And so the fact that you were able to look at the truth and that it hurt that much and that that wasn't going to be your story, that you were going to rewrite that. Absolutely. I mean, do you think some people, um, some people just don't want to look at the truth, right? They just don't want to look at it and push blame off on other things and other people. Man, I've, so many people, um, a lot of people have that problem that they don't want to see reality. And I don't even like to use that word reality too much because we often use sure. it to tell ourselves to tamp down our ambitions. But sometimes you can look at it and it is real. The thing about reality is that it's malleable. Reality is negotiable. You can change your reality anytime you want to. And it starts with changing what's in your mind, just changing the story that you're telling yourself. So another, I'm sure I wasn't the only Division Three player who got kicked off their basketball team and had to sit out their senior year in history. It's just a difference of what story did that player tell themselves versus the story that I told myself. Mm -hmm. And when you change that story in your mind, the reality changes. And when your reality changes, your actions change. When your actions change, your results change. Simple as that. So you end up playing nine years of, of pro basketball, tons of different countries. Yeah, yeah. Pick us up on that part. All right, so I graduated from college 2004, sitting out my senior year, and then I worked a, a quote-unquote regular job after college. So after I went home to Philadelphia and my parents said, you're going to play pro basketball, it makes no sense. I had no prospects, no agent, no nothing. So they were right. So I got a regular job. I was working at Foot Locker. That was my first job out of college. I was an assistant manager, worked there for about six months. Quit that job, got a job at Bally Total Fitness, selling gym memberships. Yep. Only reason I moved to Bally because I had access to a gym, so I wouldn't have to pay for it. So I worked out, I would work out at Bally's while I was selling gym memberships. And in the summer of 05, I went to what they call an exposure camp. Yep. And for those who don't know, an exposure camp is like a job fair for athletes. You play your sport, you don't just hand out resumes and talk, you actually play against a bunch of other people who want to go pro in front of a bunch of people who can actually help you get there. So this is basically it's a meat market because everybody's trying to show off. And we're talking about a team sport like basketball. So nobody's passing the ball. Everybody's trying to look like Michael Jordan out there or, I guess, Kobe for the younger generation. So I played well at this exposure camp. I actually did well. I got There were four games we played, two on Saturday, two on Sundays. It's a two-day event. And I got the footage from that camp and a, a scouting report they wrote up on their website. So this was huge for me because now, instead of me talking about how good I am, I actually have a third-party resource saying Dre Baldwin is a good basketball player. So this was huge for me. And I had that footage, which was that everything. DVD, yeah. Right. And basketball, your game film is your resume. It's not what you say. It's not what your agent says. It's that game film. And this was actually, it was, wasn't even a DVD. This was a VHS tape oh, okay. <laughs> for those who remember. So I had this on sure. a VHS tape, and this connects to another part of my story, is that I had to take that footage, took it to an audiovisual store, got, had them put it on a CD and put this CD in my computer put on this brand new website called youtube.com. And that started a whole other parallel career for me. But to continue answering your question, that footage, I started sending copies of that tape out to agents. I started calling agents cold off the, I would Google. If I found a basketball agent, I was calling them cold, sell myself a little bit and say, hey, I went to this exposure camp. Here's a link to the scouting report. If you want to see the footage, give me an address. I'll mail you the VHS tape. So I was mailing out VHS tapes to agents in the summer of 2005 trying to get an agent. Mind you, just getting an agent doesn't get you overseas. It just gets you an agent. So I finally got an agent. One agent was interested. He signed me. And that agent got me signed to my first uh, contract in Countess, Lithuania. That was at the end of the summer of 2005. That's how my career started. Then from there, I played on a traveling team in the United States, saw a whole lot of states in the USA that I never would have went to, the Dakotas, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, all that. Then from there, uh, Mexico, and ended up going six other countries after that. So that was how my career got started, which was going to that exposure camp, getting that tape, hustling to get an agent, and the agent got me on. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and with your playing, um, I mean, you have over 7,000 published videos. I mean, if it started then, 2005, 2006, how did you, um, you know, when you started playing pro ball, how did you see and develop who it was that you were going to become today? Man, well, that's a great question. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know that YouTube was going to become YouTube. 
Mm-hmm. At, in 2005, when I put that video online, YouTube was not what it is now. I, I don't know if you even, I don't know if they even had subscribers when it first came out. There definitely wasn't a way to make money from it. Right. Nobody was calling content content. We weren't using that word. There was no such phrase as personal branding. None of those, there was no such thing as vlogging. That wasn't a thing. None of those things existed. So I started putting videos out just sporadically. I put a video out once a month, every couple months. I would record something and not even put it out for six months because I didn't care. YouTube was like a, a site for cat videos and babies doing funny things. That's what YouTube was for the first couple of years. But then someone sent me an article that it was this woman who was making money from doing like cosmetic makeup videos on YouTube. And they said to me, hey, you make videos on YouTube, right? Why don't you, maybe you could make some money from it too. So I looked into what that was, and at the time, Google was just starting to monetize the site because they had bought YouTube. And that's when I started putting videos out every day because I was going to the gym to work on my game every day. I figured, why don't I just bring my camera and record one new thing every day? I'm talking one to two-minute videos. These are not full-scale productions. One to two-minute homemade, literally homemade videos that I'm editing on Windows Movie Maker, and I'm a terrible video editor. So I just started putting those videos up once a day, and an audience started coming to these. I thought that what I was doing was very basic. I thought it was very normal. I thought every basketball player does. There's nothing special about this. But what I realized was maybe every basketball player wasn't doing this, and not every player was able to explain what they did as well as actually do it. Because a lot of people are good at doing something, but they can't explain it. That was the teacher you can't explain, right? Right. When you yeah. can codify your knowledge, that's when you become a coach. You can write a book. You can do a, a speech. You can... No, you have clients when you can explain it, but a lot of people can do things where they can't explain it. So I realized that that's really what separated me on top of the fact that I was very prolific, that I was doing it every day. And that's how I started to build an audience. And maybe a few years in, someone asked me, well, Dre, you show up to the gym every day, you work out every day, but you didn't make your high school team till your last year, you got kicked off your college team. And now in the pros even, I wasn't always signed to a contract in the pros. There were times where I didn't have a deal but you still have to work out every day because if that phone call comes, oh, you have yeah. to be ready to go. So I will work out every day, and players would ask me, well, Dre, how do you stay so motivated, so mentally tough to keep doing this stuff when you've had all of these setbacks? So I started making a video every Monday. I called it the weekly motivation, where I would just talk about the mindset tools around my physical actions. And those videos, I did about 400 of those, 400 straight weeks. Those were the foundation for the book, Work On Your Game, that you mentioned at the top it started with those weekly motivation videos where I was just explaining what was going on in my mind. The discipline to show up every day, the confidence to put yourself out there, the mental toughness to keep going even when the success has not happened yet, and the personal initiative to kind of start something even when you have no idea that it's going to produce a result. So that's how, if we were to fast forward, that's how the YouTube kind of career started, if you want to call it that, which led into me building my brand. While at the same time, I'm trying to keep this pro basketball career going, which is a very up and down career. Right. But that's how I learned those things. But had my career been smooth, like had I had LeBron James's career, we might not even be talking right now because I would not have had to even think that deeply about my mindset tools. Maybe I wouldn't have even needed them if everything was going smooth. But the fact that things weren't working is what forced me to dig into this, what I call the mental game, and build this other, this brand, this other lane that I do now that my career that I'm not playing anymore. And, and so part of that with your brand, I mean, you talk about that, especially with, with uh, athletes is, you know, you spent so yeah. much time on one craft that, you know, where's the payout? But you were able, right. like you said, to codify that experience. I mean, even since the days from the, uh, the blacktop on, you know, streets of Philadelphia playing ball there. I mean, so you were able to, to take the knowledge that you've learned through your experience, through your, uh, bad stuff that's actually the good stuff which you say when did when did it really take off for you in terms of being an entrepreneur author speaker when did when did that turn and you're like you really know you're making an impact there on people's lives man well on youtube of course you get the comment section which is way crazier now than it used to be in the comment section on youtube but people will let me know that it was really helping them i mean even to this day because I've been in the game so long, I get people who don't even play basketball anymore, but they tell me, you know, Dre, when I thought I was going to the NBA and I was 13, I used to watch your videos every day. I've had neighbors, people who are my neighbors here in Miami say, yo, I used to watch your videos when I was in college. So on the basketball side, 
I mean, still to this day, I still get people telling me that. But really, it was those weekly motivation videos. I would have people who were not into basketball watching those videos, and they would leave comments and say, Dre, I don't even care about basketball. But I subscribe to you just to hear you give these videos every week because this stuff is useful for life. This is not just basketball talk. This is life talk. So that was what planted the seed in my mind that when I'm done with basketball, I could do something with this. I didn't quite know what. So around 2011, I wrote my first book, Buy a Game. Uh, it was terribly written, but when I went and read it, I had to go rewrite the whole book later on. But that was my first book in 2011. I played pro ball up until 2015. So it was around that time I was thinking, all right, what is my exit strategy? What's the next thing I could do? Yeah. But I always knew that I had a great skill of taking what I knew and explaining it to people. So how could I do that? I could be a writer. I could be a, a, I could author. I could blog. I could maybe speak. And I like speaking. I always like speaking from a stage or getting in front of an audience of people. So I thought maybe professional speaking is something I can do. And I talked about that in the book, in the chapter on mentorship. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had some material from these weekly motivation videos. So that's what I figured would be my next route. And I started to get into that a little bit. And I realized like online is where everything is at. So while I still, I still do professional speaking now and coaching and consulting, I really like online. Online is my lane. If I had to pick one thing, I would just create content, turn those that content into products, put people through you know, websites, sales funnels, things like that, email marketing. That's what I actually like to do is being on a computer as opposed to you know, traveling around. I love traveling. I like being on the stage. I like the feeling of getting off the stage and everyone wants to shake your hand and take a picture. That's a great ego boost. But if I had to pick one thing, it would definitely be uh, doing things through the internet where I can reach a mass of people like we're doing right now with one message. So that's really my thing. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Do you think, um, cause I mean, you, you talk about, you know, finding value to your experience, which, which you do. I mean, do you think that you're best at the online piece? Is that why, uh, is that why you follow through on that? I think what I'm best at is taking my ideas and, explaining them in a way that anybody can understand it, even if you know nothing about what I'm talking about. Like, I feel like I could walk into a room with people who never played basketball, and I could have, have them have a very solid understanding of the game within 30 minutes. Yeah, That's what I do. So I take and I do the same thing with my mental game, the mental game tools, discipline, confidence, mental toughness, personal initiative. I break them down. I'm able to connect what I know to something that my audience will understand and then build a bridge between the two. So that you completely understand it, not only that you understand it, but that you can apply it and do something with it. Because that's the part that really matters. Because if people appreciate your knowledge, but they do nothing with it, and it doesn't matter. Is when people actually can do something with it and get a result. Right. That's my that's my wheelhouse. That's what I do best. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I love like the one on one coaching and and small group right. coaching because I love to see people go through that whole experience. And you talk about the bad stuff is actually the good stuff. Right. And I love that line by you. Can you elaborate on that? And, you know, because I'll ask everybody, I think early on, I'll ask everybody, hey, define mental toughness. But, I mean, I think we're defining it the whole way. But talk about that. The bad stuff is really the good stuff. Yeah. The bad stuff being the good stuff, I heard someone once say, and I'll take credit for it, they say your mess is your message. Yeah. The mess that you go through is the message that you deliver. Because I tell people like this. If you're standing on a stage and when you stand on a stage, usually you're on a stage because you have some credibility. You have some experience and some positive things that you've did, some great things you've accomplished that puts you on a, a ped literally a pedestal above everyone in that room. And they will listen to you because of your credibility. But people will not connect with you unless they know that you've been where they are, mm -hmm. unless they know that you have sat in the seat that they're sitting in. So if you stand up on that stage and all you talk about is all the great things you've achieved, I can respect it, but it's not going to connect with me. It's not going to stay with me because I, I don't have that experience. Everything hasn't worked out for me the way it's worked out for you, Mr. Superstar on the stage. So when you tell people about the setbacks that you've been through, that you've been where they are, and not only that you've been there, but how you got from their seat to that stage, metaphorically speaking, maybe, maybe literally, that's when people really connect because now they're like, okay, you were where I'm at. And you just told me exactly how you got from there to where you are now, from here to where you are now. Now I know I can do it. So that's how that's how you really get people to connect with you. And I define mental toughness as your ability to stay disciplined, doing the work, 
and confident putting yourself out there, even when you thought that being disciplined and confident was going to produce results, but it hasn't done it yet. So mm-hmm. you're like, wait a minute, I thought if I did A, B, C, I'd be successful. I did A, B, and C. There's no success. Mental toughness is your willingness to keep doing A, B, and C until you get to success. Like mm-hmm. The key word for me of mental toughness is until. Not if, but until. I dig that, man. Mm-hmm. Dre, I mean, what would you tell somebody? So, like, um, well, I mean, in your book, I mean, you talked about, and one of my favorite parts is like the bad mental errors that good people make. And I think yeah. you do. I think you do a great job writing. I like how you. Uh, I like how you write. I like how you put the stories in there. I mean, you do a really good job. And and one of those, you talked about replaying bad moves. Can you yeah. can you elaborate on that piece, man? Yeah, replaying the bad movies is like. If anyone here, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has seen a bad movie before. Uh, you, Rob, you probably remember the last time you went to the movies or got something on Netflix and it kind of just sucked. But yeah. if we can even think of going to the movie theater. Because if you're watching something on Netflix and it sucks, you can turn it off. But if you pay for a movie ticket, you're probably going to sit through it and say, all right, maybe it gets better because you made the investment, right? The time investment, you're there. Let's just see if this turns out good. So any of us sees a bad movie or a bad documentary or anything that is not good, you're probably not going to watch it again. You're not going to pay to see it again. You're not going to invest your time into it. And if you can keep one of your friends from watching it, you'll let them know to save them from the the torture of having to watch that bad film. And everyone agrees with that. But what we do in life, in our minds, when we go through situations that we did not enjoy, we go through some experience that was a setback for us, or we experience some energy that just doesn't work for us, what we do is we watch the movie over and over and over again. We rewind it and we watch it again. We feel how we felt again. We feel bad about how we messed up again. We think about how this person did us wrong again. And we keep replaying that movie in our minds. And the way that that works is anytime that you're thinking about something, especially when there's, there's an emotional connection to it, yep. you are drawing that energy to you. You're asking for more of it. Anything you focus on, you're creating more of it. And when you're emotionally charged up about it, you're, you're drawing it to you even faster when you're emotional about it. And usually we replay movies of things that make us emotional in, the, in a bad way. And that causes us to we keep watching this movie and then the same thing just keeps happening over and over and over again. And then we're asking ourselves, why do we keep ending up in the same situation? It's because we're not conscious of the fact that we're habitually rewatching the same movie. And I, I mentioned in the book that 85 percent of our thoughts are habitual and unconscious. And if you're not conscious of the thoughts that are going on in your mind, you can't do anything about them. So the step to changing, to stop watching that bad movie, is first you got to become conscious that you're doing it. And you have to accept that you're doing it. And then, only then, can you do something about it. But first you have to become aware of the fact that you are replaying this bad movie. Have you ever walked out of a movie in a movie theater? I did once. I was I with did a too. girl. I did once. She, she, she suggested that we walk out. But I was going to stay with it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I remember walking out once too, man. Um, yeah. it, and it's funny though too, man, cause like, um, the negative far away is the positive, you know, right. I need you to help me, um, understand this piece. So if we replay the bad movies and we get those, uh, those negative thoughts, you know, same thing that happened when coach kicked you off the team that became right. a motivating factor. So help me navigate that. Where, where's that balance of, uh, being able to prove people wrong yet not not replaying that bad movie. Well, it all comes back to the story that you tell yourself. Okay. And this is this is all about the negotiability of reality. Mm-hmm. So when that coach kicked me out of the gym, like I said, I'm sure I was not the first, nor would I be the last basketball player kicked off of a college basketball team right. whose college career got ended that way. It's happened to plenty of players. Some players tell themselves a story that and I know they tell themselves this story because I get their emails. Uh, my coach kicked me off the team. My coach is a hater. My coach won't let me play my game. My coach doesn't see things the way I see them. My career got ruined. I just need someone to give me a chance. I don't know what to do. Where do I begin? That's one story you could tell yourself. The other story, the story that I told myself was, okay, this guy kicked me off the team. The only way that I can prove that he was wrong is to take it to the next level, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. The same situation two different stories, two different realities. And this is why I'd say to people, reality is negotiable. Often people like to use reality and they say, well, you have to look at reality as if it's one objective thing. Reality is not objective. 
Yep. Reality is 100% subjective and is based on each one of our individual perspectives. So when you change your perspective, your reality changes that fast. You are not subject to reality. You are the creator of reality, each one of us individually. So how you find that the balance between them is I say there is no balance. It's just a matter of how you want to see the situation. And any one of us at any moment can change our reality by changing our story and changing our perspective, the angle from which we look at a situation, and it will change everything for us. And that's we're really often where I see the power of a coach or a consultant or mm -hmm. someone who gets hired to give a keynote speech or a guest on a podcast or a podcast or a book. It's not that we're giving you information that you didn't already have most of the time, especially these days. We're giving you a new perspective on the information that you, quote, already know. And a lot of people know things, but they don't do anything with them is because they have a, a perspective on it that's not moving them to action. But when you have a perspective that moves you to action, all of a sudden with the same information, the same situation, you're the same person with the same skill set, all of a sudden you can achieve a whole lot more just because your story changed and your angle changed. Mm -hmm. So that's how you can figure out which one you want to use. I appreciate that, man. So your perspective yeah. changes on depending on where you stand, right? And the story you tell yourself. Exactly. exactly. Let me ask you a question. One of the things I'm always fascinated by uh, with high achievers and successful people is uh, is that success piece. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, Brett Favre held up the Super Bowl trophy after winning the Super Bowl, and, and his first thought was, is that it? You know, people have flown back from Olympics. Um, I've spoken to them winning the medal, and and you know their thought was, boy, I, I thought it'd feel different. Or they get back, and then it's like, okay, now what? Or what's next? Um, and it's just proof to me that the process is more important than that actual product, more important than that trophy. I mean, can you talk about the process being more important than the product? Absolutely. There was. Uh, the Chicago Bulls, during their championship years, they had an assistant coach by the name of Tex Winter. He was the guy who you know, brought in the triangle offense to the NBA. And one thing that he always said was that as soon as you celebrate a goal that you aimed to achieve, you achieved it. As soon as you hold up that trophy, you're no longer a success because you're not going after anything. And my definition of success is someone who has a goal and you're going after it. It is a pursuit of a worthy ideal as Earl Nightingale used to say in The Strangest Secret. So if you don't have an ideal that you're pursuing, even if right now you're celebrating the goal, that's why you have that letdown. Because it, I can imagine with an Olympic athlete, every four years, so you put four years into it, you finally do it and you get your medal, and now it's like, now what's the next thing? So I can definitely imagine that. In sports, the same thing. A team wins the championship, they celebrate so hard, they forget to get ready for the next season, then they get their butts kicked the next year because they didn't have another goal to follow it up with. And even speaking of basketball, Pat Riley, when the LA Lakers won the championship in 19, I believe it was 87, they won the championship. They had a, the parade in LA and all that. Pat Riley goes up to the podium during the championship celebration, and he guarantees to the crowd, we're going to win it again next year. And all the players on the team, Magic Johnson, all these guys are looking at him like, man, what did you just say? <laughs> you're putting all this pressure on us. We didn't even finish. The champagne didn't even drive from this championship. Now you're saying we're going to win another one. But Pat Riley understood that he had to keep those guys motivated to do it again, and they did do it again, and then he did the same thing again. He said, we're going to win three in a row. They didn't win the third one, but they did win two in a row. But for me, to answer your question, is just always having that next goal. What is that next thing that you want to achieve? What's the next, the next area that you can get to, the next uh, plateau, I guess, you can get to, the next mountain peak you can get to once you've achieved something already? And that's that's again that goes back to the mental and this is also where a coach or a, a trainer or just someone who can keep it real with you has value because they can make sure that once you reach this this thing there's something else to go to because the day that you wake up and you don't have any reason to be waking up eventually you're going to stop waking up so we all need a reason to get up in the morning and what i like to say is that as long as you're alive you're a work in progress if you're alive there's a reason why you're here there's something that you need to bring to the world. Something you need to put on the table rather than just taking things off the table. It doesn't matter what you've achieved, you can always go further. And it's like uh, Kobe Bryant, I heard him say this, because you know now he's out of basketball, he's making, his, he's making content and writing books and things. And I heard him say that if 20 years from now, my greatest accomplishment is what I did on a basketball court, then I'm a failure. 
because he's still alive because he believes, I believe this is what he was saying, is that I'm here to achieve something and accomplish something. Just because I did all this great stuff as a basketball player, I'm not dead. I can do even greater things. So it's just having that next goal to reach, a reason to wake up the next morning, as he said he did. The day after he scored that 60 points in his last game, the next day he was at his office writing out stories for his next children's book or whatever it was Mm -hmm. he was doing. But it's having that next thing to go to. And it was that work ethic that Kobe had, that grind. I mean, that was uh, that was the part about that was the value to his experience, right? Like that transferred into everyday life when basketball was over. Because at some sport, at some point, every one of our sport ends. Right. But so it's what are you going to do next? So do you think then? I mean, we have to, because that's the part that I look at. If if all we're doing is striving for that goal, striving for that goal, and we don't really have that gratitude and appreciation of, I don't have to run this hill, I get to run this hill, you know, that appreciation and struggle that we have to go through. I mean, isn't, so that's what you're saying in terms of that's the success piece is being able to find meaning in that. Find meaning in the, in the goal you're asking? Not the goal, but the struggle, the process. Well, I think some people enjoy the process. Like I think somebody like Kobe, I think some part of him enjoyed it. I never actually asked him. And I'm sure there are some athletes that you've worked with who enjoy going to the, do the work every single day. But there are some who hate it. But they can both be great. And some people just like they will accept the process because they know the goal at the end is what they're actually after. And they'll be willing to stomach you know, eating their vegetables, so to speak, in order to get to that goal at the end. And some people like eating the vegetables. Like me, I like eating the vegetables. I like working out every day. That's something that I enjoy. But you don't have to be that way. You just have to know that there is an end result to be after. And whatever story you need to tell yourself to show up every day and do that work, you tell yourself that story because you better be in that gym or on that track or on that course or on that field every day at 6 a.m. or whatever time you got to be there in order for you to be the best. You just got to figure out what story works for you because we're all different. We're all unique. So as far as finding meaning in that process, I think it will be worthwhile for anyone to do that simply because the moment of celebrating the goal is very short compared to the length of the process. So hopefully you can find some value in that process because it's like a 100 to one ratio for the time you spend in the process versus the time you get to actually celebrate the goal if you actually reach it. So again, that's about the story that you tell yourself. And that's where if a person can't figure it out on their own, that's why you read a book. That's why you listen to a podcast. That's why you go find yourself a coach, a second set of eyes who can help you figure out what that story is going to be. Because that's the story that we tell ourselves is really the determining factor in what kind of lives we live. Mm-hmm. Dre, yeah. what, um, what, what should I be asking that I'm not asking you? Mm. Good question. What are some things that, question that I would ask me, or what are some things that would-be pro athletes don't have that they don't know they don't have, and it's probably the difference between them making it and not making it? So I'll answer that question. Please, (laughs) man, elaborate. Number one, and this is something that a lot of athletes don't like hearing, is talent. A pro athlete needs to be talented. And there are some athletes, I don't care how hard you work, how willing and determined you are, how many hours you put in, if you don't have the talent, there is only so far you're going to go. I did not have the talent. I used to play baseball before basketball. I just didn't have the talent. I went to practice all the time. I was there. All the, my dad was the coach of the local baseball team. I just did not have talent for playing baseball. It didn't matter how hard I worked, it wasn't going to happen. But when I got on that basketball court, I'm tall, I'm long, I'm athletic, you know, I'm black. I could probably make it as a basketball player. <laughs> I have some tools, some talents that will work for me. So number one thing is you have to find the area in which you have some natural abilities. Another thing about being a pro is that when you walk into the room and people know that you're a pro, they're expecting a certain level of performance. And you better be ready to go as soon as you walk in the room. And overseas basketball, for example, a lot of people don't know much about how overseas basketball works. When you're an American and you sign a contract to go over there, they're evaluating you from the first practice. If you don't look good in the first practice, they will fire you and send you home after one day. I've seen it happen to players multiple times. You won't even make it to the game. If you think, well, some players like to think 
that I don't really practice that well, but I play great in the games. You won't make it to the game if you're not ready to go and practice. You show up out of shape or you just don't look like that impressive of a player or you're not head and shoulders above your teammates, especially if you're the only American on the team, they'll get rid of you immediately. Or if your team plays against another team and you're the one American on your team and there's one American on their team and that guy outplays you, mm-hmm. they could fire you the very next day. So you really need to understand that they're expecting you to deliver at a high level every day. Practice is like a game. When I was overseas, I used to treat practices like games simply because I knew that one underwhelming practice could get me released from my contract. Now, most of the time, they would even say to me, hey, don't worry about anything. We've already decided we're keeping you. They would say that to reassure you, but I didn't believe one word of it because I saw it happen to people before, get fired because they weren't ready to perform. Another thing about being a pro is it's not like what it looks like on TV. The, the pro athletes on TV, especially the highest level, they make it look easy because they are, number one, very talented, and number two, they've done all the training. So it looks a lot easier than it is. Anybody who's ever gone to an NBA basketball game, if you sit close enough to the court, you realize, even if you're sitting, if you're on that court running, it's way longer than it looks when you're watching the game being played. That court is long, and running up and down it is hard enough, but then you got to do something with the ball or stop somebody else from doing something. Don't be fooled by what you see on TV. And this is what I tell basketball players all the time. Like What you see in these players playing pickup games in the summertime and Overseas basketball was nothing like that. You can't go over there playing just however you want to play. They will get rid of you, and they'll get rid of you quickly. You won't even know what hits you. So understand that the pros is a whole different ball game than what you think it is, and you have to go in there with an open mind, ready to learn, even though you're at the highest level. That's awesome, man. I love it. Dre, all day, man. Thanks so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate you, buddy. Absolutely, Rob. Thank you for having me. Hope audience got some great value out of this. Um, last little point. Uh, I'm going to put the links in there, but where do you want people to uh, to follow you and, uh, and and learn more about you? If you want to learn more about me, you can go to my website, dreallday.com. All my products and stuff are on workonmygame.com, and I'm on all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Just look up my name. I'm very easy to find. Awesome, man. Appreciate you, buddy. Absolutely. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit